All right, good morning. My name is Sam, uh, as, as he said two seconds ago. Uh, and I've gotten to know Dan for quite a long time, and I appreciate the invite to be able to preach this morning. It's a great honor um, and privilege to be able to be doing so. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a passage that comes from Matthew chapter 14. It's a passage where a Jesus walks on water, and then maybe even more miraculously, Peter <laughs> manages to for a little bit uh, before bungling it up a little. And uh, I want to see just in this passage what the Lord has for us today, because it's a really brilliant and precious message that I hope each and every one of us gets to leave with, to just reflect and to give thanks for how awesome our Savior is and the immense magnitude that he can have on us if we, if we take him at his word and we believe the promises that he gives to us. And so I want to just kind of set the stage for what we're going to see today. The Sea of Galilee is a really, really beautiful, special place. I've been there twice in my life. I actually took that picture with my, my camera, which is why it's, it looks like it does. Um, but the Sea of Galilee was especially precious to Jesus. 70% of the Gospels and the stories that you learn about Jesus happen around the shoreline of this sea, including the calling of the apostles. This is where Peter and Andrew come and James and John and a number of the apostles who were fishermen. They've been out on the Sea of Galilee with them and a a pretty remarkable miracle before Jesus comes to them walking on the water. You remember in Matthew chapter 8 where the disciples are in the boat and there's another really, really vicious storm and Jesus is sleeping in the boat and they wake him up and they're like, what are you doing? And he gets up and hears God in the flesh and he just looks at the storm and the wind and the waves and and you remember what he says? Basically, hush. (laughs) Hush, peace, be still. And everything goes instantly calm. And they're like, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's a good question. What kind of man is he? What's what's the answer? (laughs) He's... He's a totally different kind of man. He's fully God and fully man standing in that boat with him. And so when we come to the passage today, they've seen his power over nature before. But now they come on a day when Jesus is having probably one of the most stressful days that he will have in his entire ministry on this planet. Let me just kind of set this up. Jesus has learned that his cousin John the Baptist, who's probably the most valuable vocal supporter of his in ministry, has died. And so he loved John, bragged about John being the greatest prophet ever born among women. And he's just found out that he's died, so he's dealing with the grief, and yet the crowds are following after him because they're starting to hear that this guy does miracles. And so he's dealing with a crowd of 5,000 men, not including women and children, and he's feeding them. And I want you to imagine the stress of everybody continually coming up to you being like, I've got a problem. Do you know this about my sister? My uncle just, like, we need your help, Jesus. And one after another, he's ministering to these people. He's feeding these people. And he's already worn at the edges. Remember, he is fully human. And so at the end of that, have you ever been, by the way, in a season like that where it's like, what else could go wrong? Like, enough, enough, stop asking things of me. I'm like worn to the edges. 
And so at the end of this day, we jump into our passage in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, and it says this. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And I've always thought that that was pretty amazing. Like here you have Jesus who's like, I need a minute, (laughs) right? I've had thousands of people around me all day. Ministry's booming. Things are going great. Life is hard. Hey, disciples, why don't don't you get in that boat and just just go away a minute, (laughs) you know? And so they get in the boat and they go across. They start rowing across the sea and it says that Jesus goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. And I think that's just so instructive. I mean, Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, worker of miracles. He's the way maker. And yet, even in his season of life, he comes to the point where he's like, I've got to get alone with the Father to recharge. And so my question to you is, If Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, creator of heaven and earth, feels in the margins where he needs time alone with the Father in prayer, maybe maybe we need that. Maybe we need to be more diligent about setting aside time in the middle of all the craziness and stress to get alone with God and to put everything else aside for a moment, even people. To be alone with the Father because if Jesus realizes that he needs it, what chance do we have without it? Not much. And we need to make time for prayer. And so then it continues. It says, when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. There's something that's interesting about the combination of of darkness and waters that you find throughout the scripture. I mean, you go back to the beginning of creation, and how does it describe it? In Genesis chapter 1, right out of the gates, it'll tell you, that the world was overwhelmed by waters and it was dark. And God in creation has to go to work to overcome the darkness and the waters, right? Let there be light and then days two and three, he's working on the waters. Or you think to the greatest deliverance of the Old Testament is where Moses and the Israelites are pinned up against the waters and the dark of night and God has to bring a pillar of fire for light, and he has to separate the waters to bring life. You find these stories again and again in the Bible where darkness and waters emerge as these obstacles, these impediments, and to be quite frank with you, like dark and water don't go well together. (laughs) I have a buddy of mine who's our worship pastor in our church who goes diving at night, and he'll show me videos of his, like, what do they call the little camera on the, the helmet? GoPro, thank you. And it'll be totally dark and he'll have his little flashlight and you're looking around and it's pitch black. I mean, black. And you're just following the light and then all of a sudden a shark goes by and it disappears and you're like, nope. (laughs) I will not be doing that with you ever. 
It reminds me of a story. My, my family has a lake house up in North Florida in Interlaken, which my brother Dave describes as the only town in America where there are more people than teeth. <laughs> Sit on that. He said it, not me. I would never say such a thing. But in this lake, it's a podunk little town, and out back behind this house, there's weeds and, and lily pads and a lake, and you see alligators all over the place, especially back in the day. You would just see alligators cruising and all through that mess. And so he pulls the boat in, and I'm standing on the dock where you see my son and sister-in-law, and he's like, hey, go, go bring the boat and the trailer back, and he takes the keys, and he throws them to me, and they have the little buoy thing on them. Like, if you ever see boat keys, they have the buoy that floats in the water. Well, this was cra- a cracked buoy, apparently. <laughs> because it makes it and it goes, bloop. And I'm waiting for it to come up, like, where's the buoy? Where's the buoy? <laughs> yeah. And it goes down, and so now we're stuck. I've got to get the keys. We have to have the keys to get the boat out. We have to get the boat on the trailer so we can go home. Except we have no keys and there's no spare set. And so I'm like, you're the one who threw them. And so my brother Dave gets out of the boat and he starts going through that exact area, which is up to here. And he's feeling around on the floor of the lake and you can't see anything, but you know there's gators everywhere. You know there's moccasins in this water. And he's doing this and it's cold because it's like January or February and eventually his feet go numb and he's trying to feel for keys but you can't feel your toes anymore. And he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, why why don't you get in the water? Which to my response was, nope. (laughs) But eventually I felt bad, got in the water and I'm going around and I kid you not, at one point I felt something with my toes clamped down on it and pulled it up, grabbed it, it was a snapper turtle and I screamed like my nine-year-old daughter. But I'll tell you this, when you're out in the dark in the water and you can't see what's beneath the surface, it's scary. In fact, it's always been scary. But I want to go back through this passage and I want you to step into their experience of what we just read. They were dismissed when evening came. And it tells us it was the fourth watch of the night, which is 3 a.m., So they've been rowing against this wind, unable to make progress. Out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, they've been rowing for nine hours. They are, have you ever rowed anywhere? (laughs) You're like, it's exhausting. Going for nine hours, your arms are spaghetti noodles. And yet, now it says, keep going. It's very dark, so you can't see, except you're waiting for the lightning flash to be able to see where the land is, if you can see it at all. The storm is raging when it says that the waves were beating the boat. That's an understatement. The Greek word there is bazanitso, and it literally means torture. Like when a woman is in, in the most intense part of labor, that word is used for that kind of moment. When the, when the demons are saying, Jesus, please don't throw us into the lake of fire. Is it our time for torture? It's that word. This boat is being crushed by the waves and then they look up they see a ghost they're far from shore and this time Jesus is not in the boat and they're wiped out and I just want to stop for a moment like how can you relate to where they're at where you're just rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing you feel like you're working as hard as you can in life 
but the wind is in your face. You're not making progress. It doesn't seem like Jesus is there. And as hard as you're working, you're getting nowhere. And you want to just say, God, like, where are you in the midst of this? I am exhausted. I don't know how much longer I can go. It seems like the waters are going to overtake me. It seems like the boat is going to sink. It seems like I'm coming to the end. And I'm doing my very best for nine hours just... And for some of us, it's months or years of rowing and you feel like you're making no progress. And you want to say, where are you? You ever been in that storm? You ever fired up those questions to your God? And a lot of times what we do in the church, and I want you to hear this, a lot of the times when you find yourself in a storm and you can't figure your way out of it, and you're exhausted and you don't want to do it anymore, you start wondering, like, has God abandoned me? Like, did I do something to deserve this storm? I don't know what your storm is. Did I do something to deserve it? And I want you to stop for a moment and reflect on the fact Why are the apostles out in the storm? They're not in the middle of a storm because they're disobedient. They're in the middle of the storm because they obeyed Jesus' command to get in the boat and row to the other side. What's up with that, God? You're the one who told me to do this. And now the wind's in my face and I'm exhausted and it feels like death is on me. This is where it is so powerful to have the eyes of faith when you're in the middle of the storm and you can put your eyes on something other than the lightning and the wind and the waves and the storm. It's when you get to see your Savior. You want to know why God put the apostles in the middle of the storm? It's so he could show them who he is in the middle of the storm. He wanted to train them to get their eyes off the circumstance and put their eyes on the Savior. And that's where this gets beautiful because if you're trusting in the boat, let me show you a picture of a first century boat. They dug this up out of the shoreline of Galilee. It was stuck in the mud, so it's perfectly preserved. Dates to the first century. Might have been one of the apostles' boats. Are you getting in that thing during a storm? I'm not getting in that thing on a calm day. (laughs) Like, it looks like just sticks put together, and I'm sure they had tar and some other things that sealed it up. But you can understand why they're going, wake up, Jesus, in Matthew 8. And why they're freaking out now, out in the middle of the sea, exhausted. Like if their boat goes under, they've been rowing for nine hours. They don't have the strength to swim to shore. This is life and death for them. It's meant to be life and death for them. But thankfully, this ghost they see walking out to them is not a ghost. It's the Savior. Matthew 14, verse 27, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So this is proof that Jesus likes three-part sermons. Just, Just FYI. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And here's the reality. Like when you go through scripture, when you walk through the story of redemptive history, this is one of God's very favorite sermons that you find him saying again and again and again and again and again as you walk through redemptive history. Let's start with Moses. 
God comes to Moses and says, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to confront the most powerful king, Pharaoh, that the world has ever seen to that point. And I want you to tell him that he's going to let all of his slaves go. And Moses is like, huh? And I want you to know, what does God do? Because God doesn't say, okay, let me make sense of this. This seems like a death mission, but here's what I'm going to do and lay out the game plan. He doesn't do that. You know what he says to Moses? I want you to go do this, and I will be with you. Period. That's enough. Because reality is, like, you're looking at an omnipotent God. You're, you, you worship and serve the God of the universe who says, let the universe exist, and by the power of his word, universes and stars and the most powerful forces that we know in our universe come into being just by the power of his word. And that God has your back. That God loves you to the point where he'd give his life for you. What would he not do for you? What circumstance do you need to be afraid of if he's walking with you? Right? When he comes to Joshua and he says, Hey, Joshua, you with these former slaves are going to go into the promised land and you're going to conquer all of these really mighty, scary armies. What does he say? Listen to the three-part sermon. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Take heart. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So you can be full, you can put your chest forward, you can be courageous, you can be bold. You don't have to be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you wherever you go. Do you know you have that same promise? You think about the Great Commission when Jesus tells his disciples to go to every nation under heaven, teaching them. All of his commandments, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. And it seems like that's a crazy mission. That's overwhelming. How in the world are we, this small group of apostles, going to go to the ends of the earth and radically change the world? Jesus just gives one playbook. He says, I am with you even to the end of the age. And that was enough. You think Psalm 23, where David is walking through one of the worst moments of his life. And listen to what he says. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the worst thing that this world could throw at me, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In Hebrews, what does the early church get to say? We say with confidence, with boldness, with courage... The Lord is my helper. He's with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And so here you get Jesus coming out on the waters with this three-part sermon. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. You know, we have a lot of reason to take courage when we realize who it is that has our back. Who goes into the battle with us who promises us that there's safety in his command. We've got a lot of reasons for confidence. And it's not just that when he says, it is I, it's not just that he's saying, I am with you. The Greek words that are behind, it is I, it's two Greek words. It's ego me, And it literally means, I am. That's what he's saying there. Now, why would that be powerful to the Jews? 
Going all the way back when, when Moses is at the burning bush and he says, you're going to deliver my people, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am. And so here you have Moses walking on the water saying, here's why you can be courageous. Here's why you need not fear. I am. Ooh. Revealed something about his identity, right? Every victory story, every deliverance that's ever happened that came from the power of the great I am is standing on the waters right in front of them. And man, if he is with us, we have no reason to fear the number one most repeated command in all of scripture. Be not afraid. Do not fear. Our God, who knows the beginning and knows the end, is the only one who has authority and credibility to come to you and to say, I've seen all your yesterdays, I know all of your tomorrows, I see you right now, you have no reason to fear. He's the only one who can say that authentically with, to you and know what he's talking about. Now, I remember back when I was in high school, I was in 11th grade, and I was dating a, a senior cheerleader obviously. <laughs> and so it was our first date and I'm driving out to her house and she lives in the middle of orange groves. If you know Vero Beach, lots of orange groves, especially back then. And so I'm driving there and I'm, I'm nervous about meeting her family. So I get into the house and I'm walking in and they're watching a movie called Eight Seconds, which I'm going to spoil it for you if you've never seen it. You don't want to see it. It's not that great of a movie, but anyway it's a movie Matthew Perry's in it it's about a rodeo rider and then when I walk in like this is the type of family that lives in the middle of an orange grove that's very much into rodeo riders and so they're all on the edge of their couch they're all watching this and they're wanting to know what's going to happen in this movie they're white knuckling it right like oh my gosh what's coming what's coming oh my gosh what's coming what's coming and I walk in and I'm like hey and they're like yeah 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 yeah. we're watching a movie Be, be quiet And so I've got all this nervous energy and I'm trying to make a good impression. And so I'm like, what you watching? And they're like, eight seconds. But behind that is, be quiet. (laughs) And so then I say, oh, is this the movie where the cowboy dies at the end? (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) And so like together there was this great chorus of, oh... Like, they'd been watching this movie for who knows how long at that point. But in that moment, all tension was like, like, it was out of the balloon. And they're up. There's no more white knuckles. They're, like, leaving. They're not even watching. They're going to the kitchen. Movie experience over. And I felt like an absolute moron because I was an absolute moron in that moment. Why am I telling you that story? Because we have a tendency to go through this life white knuckling it. We have a tendency to be on the edge of the couch wondering, how's this going to turn out? What's going to happen? And here's the good news. God has spoiled the ending. You don't have to white-knuckle it anymore. You serve one who has conquered sin and death. You serve and worship one who has overcome everything you face who's taken all your curses and given you life and an eternal inheritance that can never be taken or stripped away from you. What could defeat you now? Let go of the couch. 
Stop staring at the wind and the waves and the storm and the lightning and all the things that seem insurmountable and put your eyes on the Savior who says, I've got this. That'll make you go, We have no need to fear because of the one who promises that he goes with us always. There's never an exception to that. You might find yourself in a storm. Do not take that as a message that God has left you. Look at this story. Why does he want them in the storm? It's so that he can show them that as scary as the storm is, he's got this. He uses this to teach the people that the storm serves him. And it transforms them into the apostles that they're going to become because of this storm. God uses storms, so always be mindful. And so I love what Peter does. He's looking at Jesus walking on the water. The storm's still raging. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, that's pretty wild. Now, notice what Peter doesn't say. He says, can I do that? He doesn't say that. He says, command me to come to you on the waters. Why does he put it that way? Because Peter instinctively recognizes that there is safety in the Lord's commands. If he tells you to do something, if he's calling you to do something that doesn't make sense, that looks scary, there is safety in the Lord's commands. And Peter sees that. And so Jesus says, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And what's wild about this is this is not just a parlor trick where you go, oh, cool, they walk on water. Jesus is teaching a theological point here. And I want to pause there. Let's go back into the scriptures. Remember at creation, you have water that's suffocating the earth and God has to go to work to separate the waters to allow dry land to emerge so that life can come forward. Waters kept life from happening. You fast forward to the flood narrative and look what happens in all the times that we see major bodies of water. You have the world that has become utterly wicked and God uses waters to drown, to to judge the earth and the wicked perish in the waters but the faithful are delivered through the waters. Follow? Waters are death and judgment. Fast forward to Moses and the Red, the Red Sea. What happens? God uses the waters to deliver his people through the waters, and then he uses the waters to judge and bring death to the wicked Pharaoh and his armies. Jonah is thrown into the waters and he's taken down. And what does he call it? From the bottom of the sea, he prays out that he's at the depths of Sheol, the grave. The waters are death. You look at the psalmist who cry out, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Like David is not saying that he's in waters. There was an understanding that that's what the waters meant. They were death. The waters are up to my neck. If they get to here, it's all over. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. Still to this day, we use this expression when we say, I'm in deep trouble. Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. There's God's promise. The waters are not going to triumph over you. Well, if the waters are death and judgment, the waters are not going to win. 
When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Even baptism itself, do you realize, when you go down into the waters, it's a picture of your death. Waters, that's what it means. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's burial, resurrection. And so now, if waters and their understanding of the day meant death and judgment, now I want you to reimagine what's going on in this story. When the disciples are going, oh my goodness, we're going to die. And Jesus comes out, trampling over the emblem of death and judgment. Wait a minute, you mean we serve and worship the one who treads on top of death and judgment? That's pretty cool. And what does Peter do? Because this is instructive. We're, just, we're dealing with soteriology. This is salvation stuff. What does Peter say? Command me that I may come to you. And by faith, Peter gets out of the boat and with his eyes fixed on Jesus. You, Peter is trampling on the emblem of death and judgment too? Yeah, this isn't calling you to go out to your pool and say, do I have enough faith? (laughs) This is salvation stuff. How do you trample over death and judgment? You put your eyes on the one who has power over death and judgment. And when your eyes are fixed on him, you tread atop of the waters. And then when Peter starts looking at the circumstances, the wind, the waves, the storm, the lightning, what happens? He begins to sink. And the Lord is so faithful. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out just a three-word prayer. It's one that's good every day, by the way. Lord, save me. And Jesus says, well, I don't know. I mean, you've, you've put your foot in your mouth a number of times, Peter. No, that's not what he says. There's no debate. There's no, well, let me think about it. Can you earn it? He just reaches down his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you have little faith. Why'd you doubt? Like, why do you put your eyes on the circumstance rather than the Savior? Like, keep your eyes on me and you will go through this life with so much more peace and power than walking around white-knuckling it, looking at all of the circumstances. And so when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him. Do you remember when Jesus dies on the cross, the Roman centurions say, truly this was the Son of God? They see the way that Jesus handles death, crying out, like almost defiantly on the cross. And they're like, man, this guy, this guy was the Son of God. Look at the earthquake and everything else going on. They get back in the boat, and they say the same thing. Truly, you are the Son of God. Can you say that? Do you know that he has your back? The son of God has your back. The creator of heaven and earth has your back. But I love the way this story ends because Peter, Peter gets to the, the crucifixion moment. And he's, his faith is still growing. And, it, you know, the, the last supper, they're, they're talking and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter's like, I'll never do that. I love you way more than all of these guys. I will never betray you. And Jesus is like, Before the rooster crows, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. I'll never do that. And then that happens. 
And one of the most chilling verses in all of scripture comes from the gospel of Luke. And it talks about how when, when Peter's in that moment and he's fearing the circumstances over the, you know, above the Savior, when he offers up that third denial and he's calling down curses and he says, I do not know the man in the rooster crows. And he's like, oh yeah. And he remembers and he turns and he looks at Jesus whose face has been beaten by the soldiers and the priests and whose body is starting to be mangled. At that moment, when Peter looks at Jesus, Jesus looks up and his eye catches Peter's. Ugh. And Peter runs away and goes off and weeps bitterly. And the next time, you know, the next time that Jesus and Peter will have a one-on-one, that you'll have a resurrection where he gathers with all the apostles, but the next time that they have one-on-one, Jesus tells the apostles, I want you to go back to Galilee. And so Peter and the apostles, seven, seven guys in a boat, and like Peter's first calling, if you remember when Peter was called, they were out fishing all night, they come in, they haven't caught anything, and Jesus says, throw your nets on the other side, and Peter's like, man, we haven't caught anything, there's nothing out there, and he does, and then the boat like starts to sink, the catch is so huge, and Peter's response is, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, like I, I know who you are now, you want nothing to do with me, I'm a mess. And so after this great betrayal, they're all out in the boat and this guy's walking on the shoreline that they don't know, they can't recognize. And he calls out, have you caught anything? Sound familiar? And they say, we've been out here all night. We haven't caught a thing. Sound familiar? And he says, try throwing your nets on the other side of the boat. And they do. And the catch is overwhelming. Sound familiar? You know what Jesus is doing for Peter? He's replaying, sovereignly, he's replaying the story of his calling. Which means, hey Peter, in the middle of your shame and guilt and failure, I still want you. I'm calling you again. And you know what Peter does? I love this. He doesn't wait for the sails. He doesn't wait for the oars. He doesn't wait for them to start rowing back in so he can see a savior. He literally jumps out of the boat because he cannot wait to get to Jesus. And he swims to the shoreline. And guess what Jesus is doing? I love that at the beginning of Peter's ministry, he's like, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Can you go there? Like, it's, it's, the, it's the kind of like when I first came to faith, I was like, I got to get my life cleaned up before I can come to Jesus. And it's like, well, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> You'll be waiting forever. You'll never be cleaned up without him. But I love how he goes from depart from me. I'm a sinful man at the beginning to having committed one of the most embarrassing, shameful sins recorded in the Bible, denying your Savior to his face. And when he sees the Lord, what, his reaction is not, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. It's, oh my goodness, I'm a sinful man. I need to get to you as fast as I possibly can. Because you're the only one who can remedy that. You're the only one who waits with open arms in spite of all my sin to make me whole, to embrace me. You take my sin and defeat it and you clothe me with righteousness and you will never leave or forsake me. So no matter my shame, no matter my guilt, no matter what I'm walking through, no matter the circumstances, the storms, the lightning, the wind, the waves, I got to get to you above all else. Because you're the one who brings calm to the storm. You're the one who triumphs over sin and death. You're the one in whom I find refuge. 
He is a beautiful, wonderful Savior. And he alone can give you that three-word sermon. You ready again? Take heart. Recognize who your Savior is and that he walks with you always. Take heart at his eye. Be not afraid, people of God. The God of the universe has your back and he loves you to such a degree that he would withhold nothing, not even his own life, to conquer anything that would keep you from him. That's how much he loves you. Amen? Amen. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. Uh, I thank you. I can look back at my life and I can give you thanks for the storms. I can see how you delivered me through them and brought blessing to me on the other side. And Lord, I confess that like those apostles, I am all too quick to look at the wind and the waves and the lightning and the, and the storm and to start thinking about the boat I'm in. And I take my eyes off you all too easily, but you show us in this passage that in the midst of our failures, all we need to do is cry out, Lord, save me. I'm not enough. And you will reach down your hand from on high and rescue us again and again and again. So Father, I pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on you so that when that moment comes, when death comes calling, Lord, we would be able to trample and walk and tread and top it because our eyes are fixed on you as our only hope. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.